When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, May 17th, 2022, I'm Matt Belinsky, and this is your weekly dose of sanity as always the prevailing narrative. So the war in the Ukraine still raging uh, as we speak and the fallout of the Russian invasion, um, having second, third, fourth order impacts all over the place in terms of the global economy, balance of power, what have you. And we will get to some of the details and current status of that in just a minute or two. Um, also on this episode, I will be airing a, an interview that I did this weekend in Austin, Texas for South by Southwest with a gentleman named Dr. Joe Serio. Dr. Joe Serio is the author of the book Vodka Hookers and the Russian Mafia, My Life in Moscow. Okay, so what experience is this, does this book rely on? Um, so in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, Joe Serio was the only American to work in the organized crime control department of the Soviet National Police, the MVD. After the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, Joe worked as a security consultant for three years in Moscow, helping foreign corporations understand the pitfalls of operating in Russia and interfacing with all elements of Russian police security, government, organized crime, what have you. In 95-96, he worked as a Moscow-based consultant to the global corporate investigation and business intelligence firm Kroll & Associates and was named the director of Kroll's Moscow office. He also served as the co-chair of the security committee of the American Chamber of Commerce in Moscow. So as you can imagine, he has a firsthand insider's account of how the current conditions in that region, Russia and the Ukraine, came about. The corruption in the 90s, the rise of the oligarchs, the melding and, and essentially hybridization of organized crime and and government actors in that region and this is something that that seems so foreign to the United States that it seems something noteworthy or, or truly criminal but it's kind of understood as business as usual out there and these are all the elements that led to the conditions that we have now in that region the kleptocracy or at least claims of kleptocracy against Vladimir Putin and Joe was there for it all I mean he still has innumerable contacts in the region when you want to discuss you know the status of this conflict how it came about Joe doesn't have to speculate he literally can go directly to high government contacts of, on both sides of this conflict. It's also a very interesting, smart, and nice guy. It was a great discussion. I hope you guys stick around for that and enjoy it. Okay, but before we get to some Russia-Ukraine stuff, Tom Brady comes out of retirement after just a month. Only a, about a month ago, I had given a bit of a an honorarium to Tom Brady as a worthy opponent and how you know I disliked him during the earlier parts of his career, but grown to respect him as a competitor and wanted to honor him in his retirement. But that retirement only lasts a month. Uh, as Tom said on Twitter these past two months, I've realized my place is still in the field and not in the stands. And this brings up a, a really fascinating topic that I've studied over the years, which is the athletes and top performers having difficulty uh, leaving behind the glory of the field and acclimating to regular civilian life. And at first glance, it kind of makes sense that they're the center of attention. They get incredible buzz, excitement. These are people that have dedicated their entire life to their craft and to competition at its highest levels. And these days, most, most professional athletes have been working day and night on this since they were just a kid. Most of them don't really necessarily even have normal childhoods in that regard. It's not necessarily so. It's such a wild 
wild idea that they have a difficulty letting go. But there are some particularly interesting stories that that come out of this. I was thinking back to a couple that I've read over the years. One, uh, a very unfortunate one was Junior Seau. I don't know if everyone recalls, but Junior Seau was a beloved um, all-pro linebacker for the San Diego Chargers, many times over uh, an all-pro Hall of Famer, and just known as an incredibly upbeat, positive, happy guy who committed suicide in 2012. There's been a lot of discussion of that incident since then in terms of CTE, brain damage from his days on the field. But there were a couple pieces written about Junior and his life in this this suicide before they really got into this CTE discussion. It was really about how difficult a time he had adjusting to life uh, outside of the NFL. He was trying various business ventures and opened up restaurants and how none of them were really satisfying and, try, and and he just could not let go of the game and and living his life as just a normal everyday citizen, you know, off off the football field and the difficulties of doing so. And that created in of itself mental health issues for Junior. And I, I think that this is something that replicates itself many times over in a lot of a lot of circumstances. Um, and I don't want to discount the, the impact of CTE, but I found Junior's Seau's story particularly interesting um, and tragic. And there was a piece in Sports Illustrated just after his death by a gentleman named Scott Tinley, who is a former um, Ironman triathlete. And obviously he doesn't. Uh, Ironman triathletes do not operate under the spotlight that NFL stars do. But Tinley accepted that, hey, it's very difficult to go from such from focused on competition and high performance your entire life to to finding other outlets for that in your life. And I've just always found it very fascinating, the psychology behind that. And Tinley piece. Um, he mentions, he references Andre Agassi. I finally began to realize what tennis great and philanthropist Andre Agassi meant when he said, in a way, professional sports can, can keep people from becoming who they are. Major League Hall of Famer Cal Ripken Jr. talked about how he designed his life after 10 years before his last at bat. Speed skater Eric Hyden shared stories about sitting in a little wooden classroom desk as he sought entrance to medical school with five Olympic gold medals in his backpack and some 19-year-old kid asking, dude, do I know you? Um, so I think the point being, I mean, go be trying to become just a normal, everyday person, even even if you've had all that success and have community and love and financial independence is, is very difficult. And, uh, you know, at first glance, like Tom going back onto the field, sure, he's 44, he's still operating at such a high level. And it seems like, OK, what, what's wrong with one more go around? But um, I, I do think it's interesting to consider, you know, the fact that he just took one look into the abyss of a life outside of professional sports and all that glory. And it scared the living shit out of him. And, and I think that's a fascinating dynamic. Another one one of these incidents that I found very interesting was around, around Mike Piazza, former uh, baseball star Mike Piazza, who apparently went, you know, in his his kind of midlife crisis incident was documented in The Athletic with a piece called The Passion of Mike Piazza. How the midlife crisis of a baseball Hall of Famer led to the demise of a hundred year old Italian soccer club. So apparently Mike Piazza is of Italian heritage. He and his wife um, after in his retirement went ahead and bought a kind of second rate Italian soccer team called, I believe, Reggio Emilia. One of these small towns in Italy, the entire town is centered around the soccer team. Wasn't even a particularly successful soccer team, but Mike Piazza figured he and his wife can go run this organization, be heroes to this small Italian town, rise this team into the, the upper echelons of Italian soccer, and this would be a great way to spend the middle of his life. Didn't work out too well. It was an absolute disaster, and it was kind of defined by all this hubris, all this kind of arrogant thinking. His wife did not endear was was put in charge of a lot of operations did not endear herself to the citizens the residents of the town and i just uh, i can remember the in the athletic piece and you know and her even being very blunt and honest about you know 
trying to negotiate some of these situations with Piazza, that Piazza would always harken back to just the rush and the thrill that he got from succeeding on the baseball field. And that the the feeling of hitting a home run with 40,000 screaming fans around you is just irreplaceable. Here's actually how he describes it. I've never done cocaine. I've never done crystal meth. I've never done hard drugs or any drugs for that matter besides aspirin. But let me tell you, that was fucking intoxicating. And and it's interesting. We see this repeat itself quite often in that, that the hubris gained from that trying to, you know, from having that buzz and that success on the field leads to not such great judgment and decision making in other aspects of one's life. Um, but I find this particularly interesting. Professional athletes trying to acclimate to off the field activities and trans trying to trying to find continuity in the principles and characteristics of what helped them succeed on the field that don't necessarily serve them so well off the field. So the Seau incident very interesting and tragic. Mike Piazza's not quite as heavy and with as much gravity. Hey, him and his wife went at just took a little embarrassment and infamy in a small town in Italy, but drifted off into the sunset and onto other ventures. Another one, which wasn't necessarily uh, as directly about retirement, but which is a fascinating story about of an athlete struggling with the push and pull between, you know, what they're doing within their competitive sport and off the field activities was one that I just found a captivating article about Tiger Woods called The Secret History of Tiger Woods. This is from ESPN in 2016. If you got a half an hour this week, I highly recommend that you go ahead and read this. So, uh, uh, Tiger Woods was incredibly close with his father. Uh, I believe his mother had died young. His father was very active presence in his life. It, it was pushing him uh, in golf from age of about three years old since he could grip a golf club. His father was a Navy SEAL. After his father died, uh, Tiger Woods became almost obsessed with Navy SEALs and went and actually, I don't know if people know this, Tiger Woods during the late aughts after his father died was participating in Navy SEAL training with Navy SEALs on the weekends, right? So Tiger Woods would go train for golf Monday through Friday and then directly go on the weekend to uh, a local military training facility facility with Navy SEALs and do everything that they were doing, carrying 80 pounds of equipment on his back. That's actually how he injured his knee, which led to the painkillers that he was on, which led to his incident um, in uh, before Thanksgiving. And I believe it was either 2009 or 2010 with his wife attacking his car and him crashing his car and, and all that controversy and his initial fall from grace. And since then, he's done an incredible job of coming back from that. But I mean, it, it's just the psychology behind this is all fascinating. Don't want to even try to summarize it here, but the end angst and of someone who had just been for his entire life focused on nothing but being the greatest ever um, in his craft, in his sport, in the sport of golf, Tiger Woods, and then having to try to be a normal person and try to kind of feel normal emotions and participate uh, uh, off the, the course in this case. And it led to a lot of difficulty. So a fascinating story and just uh, overall the notion of athletes who have a difficult time detaching from the sport and acclimating to normal life. I mean, hey, I, I don't want to, I'm trying not trying to be critical of Tom Brady. I just, you can kind of see what's going on here. He, much like Christopher in the episode of The Sopranos, when he took one look at what his life would be like in witness protection at that, I don't know, you know, this mafia thing, my, I think I'm going to stick with this mafia thing for a little while longer. Tom wants to stick with the NFL on the field glory, 80,000 screaming, cheering fans. And um, I imagine, by all means, best of luck to Tom when he does decide to retire. But um, I just found it very interesting that these athletes trying to stare at the detaching them themselves from those those experiences just can't let go and got to go back to the sport no matter what but best of luck to tom brady either way Okay, the conflict in the Ukraine. Big day today is President Zelensky addressed Congress. I will get you the contents of that address and Congress's response in just a moment or two. But first, let's try to 
sift through the fog of war to understand once again the military realities on the ground um the royal united services institute for defense and security study they came out with an interesting assessment today um here's how they started off in acknowledging that this has been a bit of a battle of information and knowledge thus far that can kind of distort what's going on on the ground so they put it the war in the ukraine has been dominated by an effective and far-reaching information campaign led by the ukrainian state the ukrainian narrative is dominating both the news and social media cycles which are now of equal importance and forming public opinion. The narrative is littered with broken Russian convoys, farmers triumphantly towing boutique Russian air defense systems away from their hiding places, and harrowing footage of Russian tank formations being destroyed. And once again, all all those visuals are accurate, right? There have been logistical and operational failures by the Russians, and this all has been more difficult than they anticipated, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to lose. As the defense editor for The Economist relays it from the institute that I just mentioned, the Ukrainian forces opposite Dunesk and Luhansk are at risk of encirclement on the eastern side of the Dnieper. To hold Kiev and other major cities at the cost of allowing the forces of the JFO to be encircled could prove disastrous. Okay, so it seems in that trying to hold on and defend Kiev, the Ukrainians have ceded some of the northern and eastern territories to the Russians, and the Russians are making more of an advancement than people may believe. As Bill Roggio, a representative of the Foundation of Defensive Democracies, who I found has been a pretty credible source here, the most recent map illustrates many of the points made yesterday. However, I think it understates Russian advances in the southeast. Poloy is a P-O-L-O-H-Y, and the area around it is under Russian control. This shows how precarious the situation is in the northern part of the east. Russian troops have bypassed Kharkiv and are pushing into Izium, where there's fighting inside the town. As Roggio puts it, Kiev is no doubt a strategic objective of the Russians, but it isn't the only strategic objective. Taking eastern Ukraine and the Black Sea, Sea of Azov coastal areas is also of high importance to the Russians. The Russian assault of Kiev is tying up a large number of Ukrainian troops, which is enabling Russian operations on the other fronts. Okay, so as we've seen, as Sam Oboria, who appeared on my podcast a couple of weeks ago, had predicted, listen, the Russians may not accomplish all their objectives. They may not take down Kiev and overthrow the government. They may still accomplish any number of other objectives. And it appears that that's what's going on with the Ukrainians kind of digging in for Kiev and the Russians making advancements otherwise. Okay, so where does that leave us and the Americans involvement, um, NATO's involvement and the conversation today um, with President Zelensky addressing Congress? So a lot has been made over on social media, at least with the commentators trying, you know, people on one side lining up, believing that Zelensky is this heroic courageous figure who has stayed in the Ukraine and fought and led his people admirably. And a lot of people who seem to be more critical of him because in in him making overtures or trying to persuade the United States and NATO to get involved, believe that he is selfishly putting the United States and, and NATO at risk. And the way I see it is I, I don't fault Zelensky whatsoever for trying to convince the United States that's in his interest for the West to get more involved and to come to the Ukraine's aid. I I can't. It's not a matter of him being response. It's not his responsibility to keep the U.S. out of the war. He's not going to say, listen, guys, don't come to our aid. Don't help us out. You know something? We're completely outmanned and I don't want you instituting a no fly zone or sending us weapons because that might put the you guys at risk of this uh, of Russia counterattack and the war breaking out more broadly. Like that's not Zelensky's job. Okay, that's the job of American politicians. It should be 
people in the West who are taking a more measured and judicious look to this war and trying to keep us out of broader involvement. Noam Blum, who's one of uh, another really good online commentator, um, he responded to Congressman Adam Kinzinger, who I'm not much of a fan of, making uh, a strong case for a no-fly zone and a lot of people reacting that Kissinger and Zelensky are one and the same and both being really irresponsible about trying to goad the United States deeper into the war. As Blum puts it, here's the difference. Zelensky calling for a no-fly zone is not irresponsible. Adam Kissinger calling for a no-fly zone is irresponsible because Kissinger is in a position to make a less emotional decision. If the family of someone who was wrongfully killed by cops in a no-knock raid said everyone should get life in prison, we shouldn't resent them for it. But we also can't oblige them because that's not how it works. Same here. Sometimes they really need it isn't enough. And the point being, you can't expect people who have skin in the game, whose life and whose well-being is at stake, to think the same way as sober people, as the kind of sober, neutral thinking that we need to have if we're a sovereign nation thinking about getting involved in the uh, military affairs of, of a distant land. And that's what the United States is faced with here. So there's been a lot of conversation back and forth about the prospects of a no-fly zone. I myself am completely against it because I think people have to acknowledge like, yes, that will be tantamount to a declaration of war. The, uh, once you have a no-fly zone, you have to enforce it. And that means almost inevitably a Russian plane is going to get shot down. And if a Russian plane gets shot down by Western forces, NATO forces, the U.S., is it 100% certain that Vladimir Putin is going to use tactical nuclear weapons in response? No, but you can imagine that with his back up against the wall, he's going to take some action. And this simply doesn't serve our strategic purposes. And we have to balance out our humanitarian concerns and empathy for the Ukrainians as the underdog and and as the attack nation with just that sober judicious thinking and understanding that that we don't need, it does not serve our interest. We have to think of our interest and our citizens and soldiers first in deciding which military confrontations we want to get into. There was an interesting counterpoint made by Shadi Hamid, who's usually someone who is a little more hesitant about military confrontation and involvement. But he says, listen, we can't necessarily take a no-fly zone off the table. It's one of our strategic bargaining chips. Um, as he puts it, observing the debate over the Ukraine war and what to do about it, one thing has confused me above all else. For all the talk about no-fly zones, most of the talk has been about why no-fly zones are bad and dangerous, with the implication that perhaps even discussing the idea publicly and treating it as something that could be done is its own sort of escalation. This instinct can lead to what political scientists sometimes call as escalatory aversion, defined as a bias in which careful weighing of multiple risks has been abandoned in favor of avoiding a single case, worst case outcome. So he says, yes, clearly war with Russia and a nuclear confrontation is a single worst case outcome, but it's not an automatic, it's not an inevitability by any, just as a result of any escalation whatsoever. As he goes on, in effect, this escalatory aversion has led the United States to make preemptive concessions to Vladimir Putin, ceding the initiative to him in the process. The U.S. and NATO have made themselves hostages to Russian threats. We have rendered ourselves so afraid of provoking Putin without asking whether Putin himself is or should be afraid of provoking the United States. There's a fundamental imbalance in how we talk about this. Okay, fair enough. I understand that. I'm very much uh, opposed to any escalation, any involvement. I think that the United States over the past 20 years has been far too hawkish and far too flippant and and reckless in its use of military authority and thinking that we can simply mold the world as we wish with little consequence and slowly but surely over the past two decades have eroded both our hard power and our soft power and credibility. And that for all all our empathy, for all that we, we wish the best for the Ukrainian people, 
this was an this is to a certain extent a regionalized localized ethnic dispute about borders and it does not to it does not really involve us and in the encroachment uh, of nato and trying to wrap more of the countries in that region into our sphere of influence was probably a bad idea in the first place and something that is really more of a relic of the the mid to late 90s when we were such an overpowering global hegemonic power that that we could do whatever we wanted well we've frittered away those conditions and that lead and that power and we have to accept our limitations now. So given the, the, those circumstances, I'm heavily against any sort of no-fly zone, um, even to a certain extent, arming the Ukraine. I was against even considering their uh, them joining NATO and even considering joining the EU and understanding that, hey, for, for better or for worse, we have to accept that there is a, a threatening country that does have military capabilities in that region that does not want that to happen. And we have to acknowledge those realities and the strategic risks that come along with opposing that. But, you know, Hamid makes an interesting point here that we still need to be able to bargain and that keeping the prospects of a no-fly zone in our back pocket i mean we we do you know in in showing that the the russian military hasn't been quite as even if they're still making headway and are probably going to achieve any number of their objectives in the long run they've shown themselves to be less powerful and intimidating and effective as we had anticipated and they should be more scared of us than we are of them and i i see a point there it's a worthy debate i like that someone has put forth this idea but at the end of the day i'm i'm sticking with my original position that a no fly zone is not something that we should even consider and this is more of a regionalized dispute that does have humanitarian concerns we all have an instinct to gravitate to the side to the side of the underdog and yes i mean putin is clearly the aggressor here but this un- for better force is none of it, not none of our business but very little of our business okay so then moving on once again not blaming president Zelensky for trying to convince us to get involved because that is in his best interest and i don't blame much like i do not blame uh to a certain extent i can accept the objectivity of an amoral actor in vladimir putin acting in his interest i understand the aim uh, amoral neutral actions of Vladimir of Vladimir Zelensky in trying to protect his country's in- interests. So today in his address to Congress, yes, it was very flowery. He's, of course, an incredibly effective communicator and appealed to our best instincts and our and our reaction to have been being attacked on September 11th at Pearl Harbor. And listen, I, I from a rhetorical perspective, these are worthwhile rhetorical devices. I don't blame him for using it and advocating for a no fly zone. Luckily, and I believe uh, listen, and when you're right, you're right. And I'm going to give Joe Biden credit. Um, taking a no-fly zone off the table and doing so publicly, I think, was the right thing to do. So what did uh, Congress do in response? We are deciding to arm the Ukrainians. So here's the $800 million in military equipment President Biden just announced the U.S. will provide to the Ukraine. 800 Stinger anti-aircraft missiles, 2,000 Javelin, 1,000 light anti-armor weapons, and 6,000 AT-4 anti-armor systems, 100 tactical unmanned aerial systems, 100 grenade launchers, 25,000 sets of body armor, and 25,000 helmets. Okay, so we're providing um, surface-to-air anti-aircraft missiles, responsive technology, and protective weapons, and we're helping arm the Ukraine. Okay, so are we being wrong here and kind of trying to be half-pregnant and getting involved to a certain extent, but not really taking any... 
uh, um, really tangible steps that we could to pr- protect the Ukrainians. Um, I, you know, I think we're I, I'm actually OK with these half measures. We're giving the Ukrainians the ability to defend themselves without putting our own troops, without actually taking any uh, any hostile action ourselves. Um, so, you know, uh, given the available, uh, given the available alternatives, I think this is one that I can live with. Um, Zelensky, as I've mentioned before, is going to continue to advocate for further involvement by the U.S., but we'll have to see. From what I've gathered, there are active, tangible neg- settlement negotiations um, going on right now, and I, I can't say that we'd be too surprised if some sort of ceasefire is negotiated within the next week or two. Um, so sticking with Zelensky here for a second, because this guy, he's obviously become a worldwide hero, at least in the West, as of recent, with his response and you know what seems to be a very courageous act as a head of state in protecting and standing by his people. All right, what else is going on in the world right now? Everything seems to be a ramification of the Russia-Ukraine conflict and another troubling development this week that kind of speaks to the precarious strategic position that the United States is in and how we may not be able to simply operate as we wish, when we wish, how we wish. In the Wall Street Journal, Saudi Arabia considers accepting the Chinese yuan instead of dollars for Chinese oil sales. Um, The caption reading talks between Riyadh and Beijing have accelerated as the Saudi unhappiness grows with Washington. Okay, so the story goes like this. The United States and Saudi Arabia have had a unique special relationship for decades with the United States providing strategic and strategic support and military support for a long time in exchange for cheap Saudi Arabian oil and look past any number of wrongdoings and bad acts um, and just kind of differences in governing philosophy with the Saudi Arabian royal family. It all hasn't really mattered. Um, everyone remembers in the first Gulf War, Saudi Arabia even provided the, the staging grounds um, for American forces in the Gulf, and they, they've been a key ally of ours for years. Um, obviously, they've been a an enemy of our other strategic ally in the region, Israel. But that even seems to have been thawing over the, of the last few years. And, you know, say what you want about him. But Donald Trump did seem to cultivate warm relations with Saudi Arabia and break some of the thought and thaw some of the relationship between the Israelis and the Saudi Arabians with Saudi Arabia normalizing relations with with Israel, much uh, both as a countermeasure to uh, Iran and Iran's growing influence in the region, uh, Iran being a predominantly Shiite Muslim nation, Saudi Arabia, in contrast, being the leading Sunni Arab nation in the region. Um, So things had been going very well. There was a a kind of reformist up and coming young leader in Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman. um, And he seemed to be wanting to uh, westernize the economy, um, invest in in American domestic startups. And uh, the Trump administration seemed to once again look past a lot of other faults with the Saudi Arabians and, and their governing class in exchange for that and realizing, hey, these are a strategic partner of ours, that, that it it serves our interest to be in their good graces and have a positive, clean relationship, even if they don't have the same view towards human rights as we necessarily do. Well, the, the Biden administration has not been warm to Saudi Arabia. Um, the Biden administration has been very vocal in calling Saudi Arabia even a rogue state for um, the death for the murder uh, in 2018 of American journalist Jamal Khashoggi. And it's been rumored that Mohammed bin Salman was uh, behind that killing and ordered it. And um, the Biden administration is not apt to look the other way and let the Saudis off the hook. Um, However, look what happens in, in return. 
So look what happens in response. Saudi Arabia is in active talks with Beijing to price some of its oil sales to China in Yuan. The talks with China over Yuan-priced oil contracts have been off and on for six years, but have accelerated this year as the Saudis have grown increasingly unhappy with the decades-old U.S. security commitments to defend the kingdom. The Saudis are angry over the U.S.'s lack of support for their intervention in the Yemen civil war and the Biden administration's attempt to strike a deal with Iran. China buys more than 25% of the oil that Saudi Arabia exports. If priced in Yuan, those sales would boost the standing of China's currency. The Saudis are also con- uh, considering including yuan-denominated future contracts known as the petro-yuan in the pricing of uh, the Saudi Arabian oil co, known as Aramco. It would be a profound shift for Saudi Arabia to price even some of its roughly 6.2 million barrels of a day of crude exports in anything other than dollars. The majority of global oil sales, around 80%, are done in dollars. And so, I mean, this would be a very this would be very negative for the strength of the American dollar. I mean, it's kind of key to American strategic interests that the dollar uh, remain the world's global reserve currency, and because that means we can just keep on printing more of it. That people will always lend to us. That we can always borrow, and this keeps the American economy going. But now, with the with our relationship souring with the Saudi Arabians and Chinese, essentially Chinese demand and economic might increasing, I mean, this puts us at this. We now have some competition here, as the Wall Street Journal puts it. China's oil imports have swelled over the past three decades, in line with its expanding economy. Saudi Arabia was China's top crude oil supplier in 2021. As a Saudi official mentions, the dynamics have have dramatically changed. The U.S. relationship with the Saudis has changed, and China's the the world's biggest crude oil importer, and they're now, now offering many lucrative incentives to the kingdom. An economist, Gal Luft, uh, puts it at the, the risk to the United States here. The oil market, and by extension, the entire global commodities market, is the insurance policy of the status of dollar as reverse uh, as reserve currency. If that block is taken out of the wall, the wall will begin to collapse. So we want as much international business transacted in dollars as possible, okay? We need to keep the Saudis in our good graces. This has been a, a really beneficial ally to us for a long time. And I don't see the point in in uh, selling this relationship. And, uh, you know, obviously the the murder of Jamal Khashoggi is something that needs to be looked into. But I mean, we cannot ruin. We cannot essentially kneecap and hatchet a, a relationship with a strategic ally who's key to our interest in the region and our, our essentially entire energy policy um, over some human rights violations. This is the kind of magical thinking is getting keeps us getting into a lot of sticky scenarios and that while we would like to be able to, you know, order the the world as we see it, judging by our principles and our values and make sh- making sure that all of our allies and countries that we are in strategic alliance with share and reflect those values. That's simply not how it works. Right. And the more that we, we are so used to being the only game in town that we are really missing the boat and have a blind spot that these countries that, you know, are that have a lot of resources that we need can start looking to China to fill the demand. They don't have to look to the United States to supply all to, for all their dollars like they can sell to other people. They can sell to China. And this is a problem. So who knows? It, it, the decision has not been finalized yet. We can't necessarily say that they're uh, the Saudi Arabians are going to start accepting uh, the yuan for some of their oil trade. But even the prospects of this, this is now a a possibility that was n- not even considered up until very recently and i think the biden administration needs to look towards repairing our relationship with the saudis um and uh, and we've benefited from it a lot it has been mutually very prosperous and it should continue to be so and to throw that all away for you know some uh, minor human rights violations i think is just not smart in any way shape or form in that vein the biden administration is trying to revive the the iran deal otherwise known as the joint comprehensive plan of action jcp 
IPOA. Um, that is also exposing some of our strategic weaknesses here. So in reviving that deal, the new Iran agreement would let Russia cash in about $10 billion of contracts to build nuclear sites. So the, the Iran deal was entered into in 2015. We were at a different stage of our relationship with Russia, and we understood that Iran and Russia have a strategic relationship. Um, and you know they're very much supportive of each other. Russia is very supportive of Syria, Iran, and the Shiite Muslim countries in the Middle East. So, okay, in order, in Barack Obama's perspective was in order to put the Middle East on solid footing, um, and that you know the the Iran has agreed not to uh, uh, produce nuclear weapons, but we you know essentially have to ensure their economic prosperity in return. We can discuss the wisdom of that decision and the Iran deal another time. But one of the pieces of that deal is that Russia would get to supply Iran with a lot of nuclear sites and other resources and uh, there would be an open line of trade between Russia and Iran. And so in reviving the JCPOA, we have to revive that deal too. And it runs completely contrary to the economic squeeze that we're trying to put on Russia in response to the Ukrainian invasion. Um, As the Washington Free Beacon puts it, Rostam, Russia's leading energy company, has a $10 billion contract with Iran's atomic energy organization to expand Tehran's Boucher nuclear plant. Russia and the Biden administration confirmed on Tuesday that the new nuclear agreement includes carve-outs that will waive sanctions on both countries so that Russia can make good on it on this contract. So listen to this. We're sanctioning the hell out of Russia right now in order to put the, the squeeze on them and make them an international pariah uh, because of the Ukrainian invasion. Simultaneously, we're releasing those sanctions selectively within the scope of the, the Iran deal to revive the Iran deal and allow Russia to freely trade with Iran and essentially receive $10 billion um, in contracts to build nuclear sites that uh, what's supposedly um, not for building nuclear weapons, nuclear sites in, in Iran. I mean, uh, it, does this make any sense? whatsoever is there any strategic consistency or cohesion like uh, we're simultaneously trying to squeeze out this country and making a complete enemy of of them and putting our access to their oil and their gas and their resources uh, at risk um, and making them you know an outright enemy and simultaneously allowing them to prosper and get 10 billion dollars through business with Iran through a deal that we did not have to revive I mean once again we can separately discuss the wisdom of reviving the Iran deal but if you're trying to load if you're trying to line up the pros and cons, costs and benefits, it's clearly a con that we then have to selectively release the sanctions on a country we're, we're trying to sanction through other uh, through other means. Like this is not if you're looking at this from a purely neutral perspective, this does not sh- seem like shrewd behavior. But yet the Biden administration seems to have no con uh, no qualms about it whatsoever. State Department spokesperson Ned Price says we, of course, would not sanction Russia participation in nuclear projects that are, that are part of resuming full implementation of the JCOP, adding that additions were made to the text of the future agreement of restoration to ensure that all the JCPOA related projects, especially the Russian participation, as well as the Bush nuclear plant are protected from negative impact of anti-Russian restrictions. Like we're completely defanging our, our sanctions and our economic warfare on Russia. So we're completely uh, uh, we're, we're making an enemy of them. We're putting access. We're sending global oil and, and gas markets into complete upheaval for stuff that's not even going to have an impact because we can't enforce the sanctions across the board because we're, we're allowing them to operate outside the scope of the sanctions to revive the Iran deal. I mean, this is just an absolute mess. Does, it, does this seem, if taking the two stories I just mentioned in tandem with each other, does this seem like shrewd 
strategic behavior. It sounds pretty nonsensical and all for what? To serve these vague notions of of our humanitarian principles and that, you know, uh, this ethnic uh, uh, this ethnic warfare in Eastern Europe between Russia and the Ukraine that, you know, uh, that is just such clear morality as one country attacking another that we have to kind of cut our nose to spite our face and, and, and making uh, decisions against our strategic interest in support of the Ukraine. Uh, similarly, to do so in order to revive the Iran deal, like are are the benefits here really outweighing the costs? I don't think any of this is shrewd strategic behavior whatsoever, and it seems to be uh, uh, this seems to be all falling to the wayside in the background. Nobody is focusing on this, and everyone is just enamored with our supposed you know support of the Ukraine and us being on the right moral side uh, of that situation. And um, I don't think it's so clear. And while the Biden administration has been able to revive you know, Joe Biden's approval ratings, which were in the tank, have gone up a little bit recently. It seems like he's performed generally admirably or at least above what were pretty low expectations going into this Russia situation. But I mean, uh, are, are we sure? Are we not going to look at the look back on this in a year or two and see that this was a complete strategic disaster? And just because we were able to hold together a bit of a Western uh, alliance in response to Russian aggression, that that means that this is really turning out to be a net plus for the United States, it seems like a lose-lose. We're putting ourselves in a variety of lose-lose situations. We're losing on on the value of our currency. We're losing on access to resources. And we're losing on trying to enact uh, economic warfare and restrictions um, in order to get our way on an enemy country. And the more you're looking at it, the more you're seeing that the United States doesn't have as many cards to play as we would like to believe. Um, it's somewhat troubling and somewhat disconcerting. So um, we'll be tracking all of this. Who knows? It could just be all uh, it, this. This could all be smoke with Saudi Arabia threatening us uh, on the taking payments for oil in the yuan. But it's clearly it's clear that our relationship with them is not looking particularly bright right now. I'd certainly rather be a lied with Saudi Arabia, then be kowtowing and being serving the interests of Iran in that region right now. So the Biden administration seems like a mess internationally. Um, some of this will rise to the surface over time as as the Ukraine-Russia conflict recedes into the background and everybody be aware of it. Uh, our ongoing study of institutions overreacting to people yapping on social media. Okay, this week it is daylight savings time. We pushed the clocks forward an hour this week. Everybody lost an hour of sleep. In response, an outcry on social media. Oh my God, I hate daylight savings time, blah, 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 blah. Well, the U.S. Senate seems pretty reactive to social media. On Tuesday, they consented to keeping the clocks on daylight savings all year long. So this means the sun will rise later, will set layer later. We will not have that early sun uh, sunset in the winter months. Um, and at first glance, everyone thinks, oh, this is such a great idea. People have been advocating for this for a while. Um, as it turns out, I'm not sure everybody thought this through. Turns out that we actually tried this experiment before. January 1974, the U.S. entered what was supposed to be a two-year experiment with permanent daylight savings time. Unfortunately, daylight saving time, daylight savings time does not add daylight to the day. It only shifts the daylight into the afternoon from the morning. Once people realize that, the daylight Daylight savings time in January means doing everything in the dark in the morning. They hated it. There was a mass outcry to repeal the law, which Congress did later that year. The vote margin for the repeal in the House of Representatives was 383 to 16. Once again, that is 383 to 16 in August 1974. Okay, so we already tried this once. It didn't work out well. People did not like it because, once again, you can't increase the amount of time the sun is out. The, the, the way that the Earth tilts on its, on its axis, axis does not change. All your 
you're doing is dragging more sunlight into the afternoon and early evening at the expense of sunlight in the morning. And apparently the, the, our last go around with this did not go very well. It lasted less than a year. Let's look at the implications of this. Um, Josh Barrow, as what I just read was from uh, Josh Barrow's piece, um, you know, his t- piece was titled Actually Changing the Clocks is Good. Uh, listen, it, it's a bit of a pain in the ass to change the clocks, but look, now with permanent daylight savings time, I mean, this is when the sun is going to rise in various cities um, uh, in America. In Salt Lake City, the sun will rise at 8.51. Boise, Idaho, 9.18. Bismarck, North Dakota, the sun is going to rise at 9.28. Okay, that's the latest. So there's a lot of pretty much most of the U.S., at least the northern half, is going to be taking their kids to school and they're going to be spending the morning hours of the day in darkness nearly the entire year. I'm not so sure that's the best idea. Is that really what's going to accentuate and optimize human happiness? And I think this was a complete misinterpretation because a lot of people, uh, the polls are showing that people just don't like having to shift shift the time, right? They don't like having to change the clock. Nobody really polled whether people had more of a problem with the spring forward or the fall back, right? So there's just as many people who might have wanted to maintain standard time uh, where the sun rises a little bit earlier and sets a little bit earlier. So so this doesn't, I, I'm not really sure what the Senate, what tea leaves or what constituency they were trying to play off in uh, in making this decision. You know who else tried to standardize, tried to set daylight savings time permanently? Vladimir Putin. As it turns out, believe it or not, 2011 to 2014, Vladimir Putin, and as Josh Barrow puts it, his sometimes minion Dmitry Medvedev, were able to impose the apparently preferred policy of the entire United States Senate on Russia for about three years, outlasting the single winter that the Nixon and Ford administrations managed within our democratic system. But even Putin repealed this change under pressure from a groggy public that was sick of getting up in the fucking dark, changing instead to permanent standard time. Uh, so... We societies have uh, experimented with this b- before. They've seen what it's like for the sun to be rising pretty late and for everybody to be spending a bit of their their wake up hours, the morning hours, in darkness. Everybody seems to think it's a great idea that 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 feeling of of extended daylight, um, you know, enjoying a nice later sunset and drink, having a nice happy hour drink with the sun still out into the spring and summer that we want that feeling all all year long. Well, maybe the system we had in place made sense. Maybe while a bit of a pain in the ass and, you know, kind of discombobulating and disorienting for a week or so around the times that the clock changes, that there was a reason for that. Right. Because of the way that the earth is tilted on its access and it's and it spins that it made sense to to kind of uh, optimize uh, sunlight for the uh, later day sunlight for the spring and summer and optimize morning sunlight for the fall and winter. Maybe there was actually some thought put behind it. And despite the minor inconveniences in trying to change the clocks that, you know, we should have stuck with that system. I'm betting that this is going to turn out the same way that our experiment with it turned out previously. And that it, within a year or two, everybody's going to be bitching and moaning to change it back. And we're going to have to repeal this. And it's going to be yet another in the litany, the graveyard of stupid social media antics where otherwise serious institutions overreacted to people yapping on social media and made decisions that don't serve anybody's interests. But either way, I guess only time will tell yet again. In the meantime, everybody enjoy your extended sunlight. Um, And once again, coming up shortly, the author of Vodka, Hookers, and the Russian Mafia, My Life in Moscow, Dr. Joe Serio, uh, an incredibly smart and informed guy. He is going to give us a full, in-depth, first-hand account of of the Russian region, of the history leading up to Vladimir Putin's rise, and then the Vladimir Putin reign in Russia, um, and all the dynamics and elements that have gone into the, the 
the conflict with the Ukraine and, you know, his uh, a, a relay of the inside information that he's getting from high ranking people on the ground in Russia and the Ukraine as to where this conflict is headed. Um, a great discussion. Hope you stick around for it. Everybody, this is The Prevailing Narrative. And we'll have more of The Prevailing Narrative after the break. Hey, everybody. So I'm Matt Belinsky, and the, the eyes of the world right now are on Russia and Eastern Europe. Um, and a man who has been uh, in that was in that region for a really, really critical period at the end of the so uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union and kind of into the 90s and understands the area better than anyone. I'm with today, Dr. Joe Serio. He was the only American to work in the organized crime control department of the Soviet National Police, the MVD, and conducted groundbreaking research on Soviet organized crime in the 90s. Uh, Joe, thanks so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Matt. So you describe the Soviet Union as a kaleidoscope with patterns endlessly turning, endlessly shifting to the point where it's difficult to tell what's real and how the picture will change. Um, what brought a young man to such a society, um, you know, in your earlier days and your, I believe, during your college days? Yeah, it, uh, none of it was a conscious decision. So when I was a sophomore in college, I opened up the course catalog. I shut my eyes. I twirled my finger in the air and I slammed it down on the page and it landed on a class called Who Are the Soviets? Mm. And I took it because I had no idea what I was doing with my life. And I said, you know, why not? It was uh, it was Soviet culture, history, literature, politics, everything except language. Mm. And then that summer after the semester, my father said my father was an immigrant from Sicily. He said, if you want to have any chance of understanding these people, you better start studying the, Ru the Russian language right now because that's the gateway, you know, and I did. I was I was too stupid to understand that that was going to be really hard. Uh -huh. So I jumped in and I just got obsessed with it. So you still found yourself in the Soviet Union while this was still a communist country, the Iron Curtain. And for the most part, it was pretty difficult for Westerners to access, to, to even get access to this region. And how, how technically, what were you there for? So the first time in, uh, I went was 1986. Okay. So Gorbachev was in power less than a year. Mm -hmm. It was still Soviet. We were still foreigners and uh, people would look at us and stare at us on the street because our clothes looked different. And you know what? Even our gait looked different. Mm -hmm. Even our eyes looked different. Uh, we carried ourselves differently. So I went for three weeks uh, for a tour. And then in 1987, I went for six months and studied at a Russian language school. And that just started opening up all of the realities. And as I went through year after year, you go from tourist, okay, you're on a bus a lot. Mm -hmm. You go to school, now you're out on the street a little bit more. And that ended up leading to an internship, long story short, an internship in the Soviet police. Wow. So I just had all these different pieces of the kaleidoscope, right? So I had different vantage points to look at Russia from. Uh, after the tour in 86 and the language in 87, I went to the University of Illinois, Chicago, got my master's degree in criminal justice. And I worked for a guy who had been a cop in New York City, a detective at the NYPD, and wanted to set up exchange programs and you know cross-cultural programs for cops mm -hmm. around the world. And he said, look, I don't have any contacts in Russia. I know Russia is your thing, but I'll send you to China for six months. Mm -hmm. So he sent me to China in 1988. And then in, by 1989, he started developing the contacts in Russia. And he said, you know what? 
you're going to go to Moscow for a year and work inside the organized crime control department of the Soviet National Police because you're the and only one who speaks Russian. You, they allowed you access to this? I mean, this is still, it was uh, Russia, uh, the Soviet Union was reformist at this time, Glasnost and Perestroika, but I had to, the Cold War was still raging. They weren't suspicious of an American. Well, they definitely were suspicious. There were some people who were suspicious. Mm -hmm. The supervisor I ended up having inside the organized crime control department came to me one day and said, listen, that guy you've been hanging out with, who you think works in the MVD, works for the police, he's really KGB. Uh -huh. So be careful. Like, it was a lot of that. But the thing was, these guys were cops. The guys who came to Chicago were cops, and they said, look, our Russian mafia problem is going to be your Russian mafia problem. So let's figure this out. And they said, you know what? We'll have this kid come in and he'll he'll study and figure us out and, and do that. Can you tell break down the distinction between the MVD and the KGB? Yeah, so the MVD is uh, the Russian initials for the Ministry of Internal Affairs. Mm -hmm. And the KGB is state security. So essentially, the MVD are the cops. The KGB are the spies, if you put it in very simple terms. The MVD was the redheaded stepchild of the KGB. The KGB got the best resources. They had the best equipment, right, for, for surveillance and all that kind of thing. And the MVD got this table scraps. Mm -hmm. uh, no love lost between those two agencies. I, I imagine not. Imagine not. So there you are, um, end of the, the end of the Soviet Union's coming. You have access to Soviet police forces. You're becoming, you're essentially infiltrating the, the criminal justice to the extent that there is criminal justice infrastructure in Moscow and the Soviet Union. Where does your story go from there? So uh, when I was working in the organized crime control department, the director would bring me stacks of intel mm -hmm. and documents and say, look, we want you to know what's happening in this country. And what was happening in the country was crazy. Mm -hmm. It was bombings and kidnappings and hijackings and all kinds of things going on. I finished up that period, went back to Chicago, finished my master's degree. And then in one of the few brave moments of my life up until that point, I decided just to throw everything to the side and move to Moscow. Wow. So I moved to Russia on my own. I set up my own consulting company. I did that for a couple of years working with American and European companies. Was this post-Soviet collapse or pre? This is 1993. Okay. So the internship was 9091. Mm -hmm. Soviet Union collapsed at the end of 91. And then I moved back over there in July of 93. Worked for two years on my own, and then I got picked up by Kroll Associates, mm -hmm. which is a global corporate investigation, business intelligence leader, top in the world at that time. So I was a consultant to them. Uh, two years after consulting with them, I became the director of their Moscow office. And essentially that meant keeping our American and European company clients out of trouble in Russia. And when they got into trouble, my job was to make that trouble go away. Mm -hmm. And once in a while, it would be organized crime groups banging down the door of our client. Uh -huh. And I had to pull whatever lever that I had access to, to make that threat go away. And sometimes the lever would be a colonel in the KGB or a general in the MVD or Moscow City Police. Moscow City Police had a great reputation mm. and no gangsters wanted to mess with them. So we would pull the lever we had to pull to make the problem go away. And so uh, to, to set the picture here, this is kind of the the 
the Soviet Union has collapsed. Worse, the, uh, you have a massive society that's switching from a controlled centralized government with state ownership over all assets to uh, privatization of those assets. And pretty much this was a fierce struggle over the spoils of, of all these resources from the, the Soviet Union and a determination of who gets those resources. And it seemed to be pretty helpful uh, if you had access or contacts in the government and that even while we're supposed to be liberalizing and, and democratizing, that it really was still kind of cronyism and, and gangsterism in that whoever had the most guns and, and there was a kind of a melding of or organized crime forces and local law enforcement, um, a lo local law enforcement, and that essentially at, at Russia in 1993, these are the elements of which people are using to battle over the spoil, taking the spoils of the Soviet Union. Yeah, it was a free for all. Uh -huh. It was a free for all with AK-47s, hand grenades, grenade launchers, and contacts. So if you had friends in the KGB or MVD or the highest level of government, now you could get access. You could get access to everything that was up for grabs. And here's the thing, everything was up for grabs. Everything was up for you grabs. You would have, you know, we say the word mafia, what do you think about? Italian-Americans, whatever, you know, uh, the New York City situation, all that. They had their mafia. They had the hotel mafia. They had the furniture mafia. They had the automobile mafia. They had everything. Why? The entire system collapsed. Yeah. It left a massive vacuum at the time when there was 1,000%, 2,000%, 3,000% inflation. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do in a case like that? The state has collapsed. Subsidies have gone away. You might have lost your job. If nothing else, you can't keep up with the rate of inflation. Mm -hmm. So you know what? Joining a gang? not the worst idea in the world yeah and yeah. that's what that's what happened so for years you know for me in my apartment for example you can hear gunfire pretty regular basis mm -hmm. because everything was being contended over right and you'd have one gang against another gang you'd have the russians against the chechens against the armenians against the Azerbaijanis, mm -hmm. and you would also have at the same time russians against russians against russians yeah and everybody was vying for a piece of the pie and the pie was huge and I think I want people to understand that we think of the American mafia as controlling certain vice-oriented industries, um, prostitution, gambling, maybe a little bit in hospitality, things like that. No, we're talking about, think about if the mafia, uh, the five fam mafia families were battling over who gets to own all the mineral mines in the nation, or oil companies, or media, or who gets to supply the entire nation with cars. It was every core industry was up for grabs. Yeah, and if you put on top of that, the idea that the mafia mentality was not just the gangsters, mm -hmm. right? The state had a mafia mentality. I was walking across Red Square one day and a friend said to me, we were talking about mafia, and my friend said to me, of course, that's where the real mafia lives. And he points to the mm -hmm. Kremlin. And he wasn't just being cute. In the 1980s and 1990s, there was this thing called the cotton scandal. The cotton in Uzbekistan, mm -hmm. right? To make a long story short, the Uzbek government together with the Soviet government was controlling the cotton market. Mm -hmm. That sounds innocuous, but what was connected to it was death, murder, torture, embezzlement, kidnapping, you know, you all the, all the, the telltale signs of a mafia, mm -hmm. right? So when people said mafia, they weren't necessarily being flippant or cute. They really meant mafia in terms of really deep interconnected relationships backed by power, political power and physical power. Mm -hmm. So it becomes no real stretch of the imagination when you know that someone like Vladimir Putin has, is very good friends and partners with 
traditional underworld mafia gangster bosses. And that's been going on for decades. So this world, like you said earlier, right, the, the great word is melded. It's all become, uh, you you can't extract the the, the various parties. Mm -hmm. They're so interconnected, and they're so identified with each other, and they are useful to each other. Of course, that's why they're partners. Otherwise, it wouldn't be. Seems to be, as you put it in your book, just to reinforce ruling structures. You know, it, it ended up uh, there was kind of a, there was continuity amongst the ruling class and and who the powerful parties were from the communist system into the early days of a you know so-called democratic system and liberalized system right in and Russia when you in the 90s and when you move into that space you were talking about it's mm -hmm. like okay who has power over property who has power over decision making who has access to all these things coal gas oil uh diamonds mm -hmm. russia is people don't seem to understand this russia is filled with all the world's yep. metals minerals resources and all of that stuff was up for grabs mm -hmm. So you have this situation where the person that can be the most powerful to get the access, and who is that? That's Communist Party members at the, at the top. That's KGB. That's the intelligence agencies, military intelligence, KGB, uh, MVD, uh, the security services. That's uh, people that with an entrepreneurial spirit. All of a sudden, we see 20-year-olds who just popped up as leading an industry, and they had $10 million or $50 million or $100 million. It's like, wait a second, scratch the surface and find out who stands behind that kid, because mm -hmm. this kid did not do it by himself, and he didn't build, you know, work himself up, lift himself up by his bootstraps. He had a hell of a lot of help doing it. And whoever it. was helping him out probably had a few machine guns with him, huh? They had machine guns and they had the power of the pen, mm -hmm. right? So we could change laws, we can legislation, rights and and uh, uh, licenses. That was also critical. There's a gentleman named Anatoly Shubay, uh, who is the first deputy prime minister. Um, he seems to have played a pretty integral role in all of this, along with the Harvard Institute for International Development. And essentially, you know, that's kind of termed the Harvard Boys, where after a, a shock therapy economic, there's a the program was called shock therapy. Uh, Igor Gedar um, was kind of the first, you know, the, the Soviet, the post-Soviet economy was put in the hands of Igor Gedar. It was heavy uh, uh, shock liberalization everything was privatized not smoothed out and kind of done in an orderly process and that led to as you mentioned before insane inflation um and just kind of chaos in these assets floating around and you know essentially people trying to step into the void via machine gun then you know gadar uh, falls into infamy and he's replaced by anatoly shubay and from what i've Chubay is supposed to come and, and clean up this situation, right? And, and uh, conduct a, a more valid, orderly um, allocation of state assets, right? But it turns out he was just as corrupt as everybody else. And a lot of a lot of the oligarchs who appear to have attained their wealth and their access to these, you know, you spin up a Gazprom. It's like, oh, the na essentially nationalist oil company. It was like, well, someone had to someone had to authorize, someone had to gift you that company, right? And it, it appears that access to Chubay seems to to have been you know, the path to wealth in Russia in the 90s. So there's one thing that we have to make super clear, and that is somebody like Anatoly Chubayas or Yegor Gaidar or any of the people at the top, mm -hmm. they were not trying to build democracy. They were in the fight for their lives over resources mm -hmm. and access. So I saw a journalist, an American journalist on television one day, asked the guest, so is Anatoly Chubayas corrupt? Is Yegor Gaidar corrupt? You know, is Boris Yeltsin corrupt? It's the wrong question. Mm -hmm. Because corruption, as they see it, 
is the oil that greases the machinery, right? You don't do things without corruption as we would look at it, because Russia is not based on laws. It's based on relationships. It's always been that way. It will likely always be that way. When you think about democracy, I was a media consultant in Russia. I worked with the New York Times, CNN, BBC, Washington Post, uh, while I was also doing the security work. And I went to this interview one day with a correspondent from the New York Times. And they had the conversation. And then I read the article that came out in the paper and said, that's not quite what happened in that interview. And by the way, you're gushing about democracy arriving in Russia. Democracy had never arrived in Russia. And I don't care about the 1993 elections or 1996 elections. People call them free elections. My personal belief is that there's never been a free election in the Soviet Union, in the post-Soviet Union. This is not a democratic space in their roots. As people, they have tribe mentality. And you better connect yourself to a group that can protect you. Because if you have protection and you have access and you have relationships, then you can get what you need. If you don't, you're going to die either metaphorically or physically. If you don't have someone protecting you and watching your back, I had people protecting me. Mm -hmm. when, I, when I was in the organized crime control department, I had people that looked out for me. I had people that warned me about things. I had people who told me, stay away from these people. They don't have your best interests involved. I had people who filled my refrigerator when there was no food in the stores. Wow. So if you're a Russian and you don't have co contacts and relationships and access to a network, what are you going to do when there is no food on the store shelves? And guess what's happening right now again in Russia? In the last three weeks, the banks are closing because of sanctions. The stores are emptying out. Western businesses have left. Unemployment is skyrocketing. The prices have doubled, if not more already in the last two weeks. And Russians now are going to do what they've always done for a thousand years. They're going to rely on and resort to their relationships and their survival techniques. Because right now the country is being closed down. They're shutting off social media. They're shutting off flights. They're shutting off all kinds of things. Russians have seen this before. Mm -hmm. They've seen it before countless times. I'm, I'm reminded of a comment that a friend of mine made. A friend of mine was the head of Interpol for Russia. And in the 90s, he said to me, the West is all freaking out over what's happening in Russia. We've always been this way. Mm -hmm. The only thing is that now you're finding out. Yeah. And again, I think that's what's happening now to some extent. The West is shocked on some level because we're seeing it in real time, 24 hours a day. And what's happening is what's always happened in Russia. And the circumstances that might lead to complete civilization collapse in the West because we're not used to it are pretty much just another day at the office over there. You know what? Let me tell you something about COVID. Mm -hmm. During COVID, what happened? People freaked out. Then they ran to the store and they wiped out toilet paper, paper towels, Clorox wipes, whatever. Mm -hmm. Okay. But that's a fraction of the total goods that were available in a large supermarket. Russia lived for years and years and years living that game based on everything, mm -hmm. not just toilet paper or paper towels. For example, in 1987, when I was studying over there, I went into a supermarket, I saw oranges. Oranges was like weird to see in the Soviet Union. And this was February, so yeah. it was in the middle of the winter. 
It's like, wow, oranges. I go to the supermarket. I look for a bag to collect my oranges. No bags. <laughs> so I, I'm stuffing all these oranges in, in every pocket that I could find. I never see oranges again. Wow. Because the state is not geared to the population. The state was not geared to providing consumer goods. What happens when we don't get consumer goods or in Chicago if it snows too much and the government doesn't allow the streets? There's an uproar. We vote the mayor out. We get a new one in. Mm -hmm. The Communist Party didn't have to worry about that. Yeah. So who cares if you have what you need or not? I keep, the, I as the dictator, keep the people in line, literally in line, for three hours a day trying to find what they need to cook dinner that night. And then they're going to do it again the next day and the next day. I don't have the energy to do an uprising, <laughs> right? I just... Yeah, as, mm -hmm. and I think that people might be overestimating the impact that sanctions and, and isolation is going to have on the Russians because, as you described, their, their deprivation and scarcity is not such a, a, a new thing for them. They've experienced it quite a bit. And I mean, you know, what, something that you mentioned in your book um, is that, you know, the quote, civilization is just a thin veil of illusions and Americans can maintain such veil because we're a young country. We've only been around for 250 some odd years and we haven't been disabused of these illusions. The Russians have been a, around for hundreds if not thousands of years and they've had they have pain and suffering and deprivation in their culture and their history and their heritage and it doesn't quite it's it's not doesn't trigger that type of reaction from them they're the adults they're the parents we're the children if you look at it like that we're so young as a country one of the things this kind of uh quirky little phrase that's in my head a lot the two best things and the two worst things that ever happened to the United States was the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean mm -hmm. because it kept us from all of that strife in, in Europe, kept us from all those wars, it kept us from all the things that they experienced. But it also isolated us so that as Americans generally, we don't know how the world functions. We don't know that America is slipping in world standing. We don't know that places like Poland and South Korea and Singapore have amazing infrastructure. Mm -hmm. We don't pay attention to that because we have a wire in our head that says America, USA, number one, number one. We're amazing in a lot of things. And the, the one thing that we're super amazing at that the world is still perplexed by is the mentality that we can do anything. But the fact of the matter is we're getting in our own way right now. Yeah, We're shooting ourselves in the foot and we're, we're going to kind of waste the potential, the renewed potential that we could have while the world, Asia, Europe, other places have looked at us and said, oh, that's how they did it. Let's adapt some of their processes to our reality and build amazing skyscrapers and amazing infrastructure and all of that. And maybe even play a little bit with democracy, but mm -hmm. that's the least important thing. Yeah. We need to provide for our people. When I was living in China, I lived in China before the big explosion of growth and, and all that, where the Pudong region in Shanghai, which is all skyscrapers now, was basically a dirt lot when I lived there. And the U.S. government said, China, in order to get most favored nation status in the late 80s, you have to reform and build. Okay, The Chinese started building like crazy. Yeah, now they're eating our lunch. Yes, they are. And they're taking over the world. And they, they built a super highway in a couple of months. They connected the airport in Beijing to downtown Beijing. They, they built skyscrapers. They built... What's their perspective, do you believe, on, on growth and development and it, it being completely detached from personal independence and freedom? Because they seem, you know, once again, we always connect the two because that's our history and that's our heritage. And we ascended 
based our ascension was based on that foundation but other countries have shown that you don't have to have those two pillars both in place necessarily to ascend so the question really depends on what ascension means and ascension of what let's call right? china's ascension over the past 25 to 30 years. right but but so if you look at if you if you're talking about uh democratic ascension that's one thing china doesn't have to worry about that mm -hmm. if you look at china and russia they're both societies and cultures that are built on collectivism and not individuality. That's one of the biggest differences between the, those physical spaces, right? Those geographic territories and our geographic territory. We have a different psychology. We have a different mentality about the value of an individual. We have a different mentality about the value or the perspective on work and what work means. So if you take the Russia situation, which will speak a little bit to what's happening now, mm -hmm. In the, in the United States, we have law, we have individual rights, and we have predictability, right? So we developed out a system of law. In Russia, the territory is so huge that, number one, if you try to saddle me with law, and if you're after me, I have plenty of places I can run to, mm -hmm. right? And historically, that's what they did. And they said, well, I don't need to hang out here. I can go out there where there's nobody. Mm -hmm. I don't have to create law in an area where there's nobody. I don't have to I say in to... Moscow, I could go to Siberia. Right, I can go to Siberia. And if I have a relatively small number of people, now we're just a tribe or a clan, I don't have to create a system of law. Because if I don't like it here, then I can go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And and the thing is that if you have people moving, 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 because they can, because there's a lot of space, we have to do something to keep them in place. The thing that we do keep them in place with is serfdom. Why? Because there is no private property. Mm -hmm. You don't have any law. You don't have any private property. What does that mean in the big picture? It means that everything is up for grabs all the time. In Russia right now, it seemed kind of stable for the last 20 years. When I went to Moscow in 2019, I met with some KGB agents, friends of mine, and I said, what's, what's worrying you? What's disturbing you now? This place looks amazing mm -hmm. compared to when I lived there. Moscow's incredible. And they said, everything's great. And everything looks great. Then we have two problems. Number one, the corruption that we experienced in the 1990s has morphed. The cops on the street are taking fewer bribes than they used to. But what happened in the 90s was, if I as a government official said, hey, Matt, you started up this company. You're worth $50 million. You give us $5 million and we won't arrest you. What's happening now in the recent years is, hey, Matt, you have a $150 million company and we're going to take uh, your company and we're still going to arrest you. <laughs> right. So it's shifted. The power at the top has become incredibly greedy and incredibly corrupt by any metric that the unpredictability is back. Mm -hmm. You try to set up a business, you try to work over there and think you can keep the profit. If you haven't shipped it offshore, you're not. Wow. Because one of the ideas about Russian business is, especially if they're dealing with a foreigner, Matt comes to Moscow, sets up a company, and I'm Matt, Matt's partner, Russian business partner. Matt, I think, I'm not going to say this out loud, of course, but I think the business is yours. As long as there's expenses and debt, as soon as we make a profit, now the business is mine and I'm going to run you out of the country. That the, the, the mentality is about possession. The mentality is about relationships and the mentality is about power and force. That is how everything functions. So if you think about what Vladimir Putin wants to do in Ukraine, 
Vladimir Putin is a god, right? In that mentality, mm. he's at the top of the pile. He can do anything he wants. And so if he needs to go into Ukraine for all kinds of reasons, he can do it. He can kill his own, fa fairly speaking, brotherhood. Uh, pretty much a related relative, yeah. Right? Well, so is that is that the question then? Is is Putin becoming, I imagine this all, all flows from the top, and we'll get some, we'll, we're going to kind of rewind on Putin in just a second. Right. Um, but uh, is he becoming more autocratic because wasn't, you know, he seen his the keys to his reign thus far seems to be that he did clean up some of the worst aspects of the corruption of the 90s, at least put the country on a more stable footing and towed the autocratic line just enough. He did not um, he did he did not act so tyrannically as to alienate all the people and was able to at least give the the facade of, you know, uh, a balancing um, balancing modern concerns and liberalization um, with, you know, putting the country on more stable ground than it had been during the chaos of the 90s. But now he seems to be trying to consolidate power even further. Would that be correct? So in there are a lot of Russians who will always think that Vladimir Putin was a great leader. Mm -hmm. Okay. And to some extent, that's fair. Like you said, at the end of the 90s, there was there was a decade of turmoil. People were tired. There was unpredictability. And all of a sudden, this figure comes in. And now we have somebody for 20 years, for more than 20 years, the same guy is in charge. Uh, it gave us a chance to breathe. It gave us a chance to work. It gave us a chance to develop entrepreneurship to some extent. But what he did was consolidated at the top his power and the power of his cronies mm -hmm. in everything, right? His buddies run the oil companies. His buddy, buddies own the, you know, all the access to the minerals and metals and materials. And because he came from the KGB and had a vast KGB network, he's got a lot of control from one mm -hmm. end of the country to the other. Uh, now, what happens to somebody as he gets older? What happens to somebody when he sees the end near? Mm -hmm. What happens to somebody? There have been rumors. I'm not, I don't know if they're, if they're substantiated or not, that he has Parkinson's. There, what happens to somebody who says, hey, I want to leave a legacy? And the legacy might be tinged with, I really thought the Soviet Union was a great place. Mm -hmm. I don't believe he's trying to reconstitute the Soviet Union. I don't think he would be able to even if he wanted to. But... That idea, especially of Ukraine, he already has Belarus well enough. Yeah. Alexander Lukashenko is in his pocket. To put Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine, that three, the triumvirate of Russian culture. Some like fr fractional imperialist Russia. And, and keep those guys together or try to reintegrate them. Mm -hmm. That might be something that you think is a legacy worth killing over, worth fighting over. It's a lot more complicated than that, but that might be one of the Seems strands to be of thought. Definitely one of his drivers. Yeah. Yeah. What What are you? What other drivers are you seeing? I mean, also as, as you and I have discussed separately, we all you know, and and what the the kind of common media narrative seems to really ignore is the fact that there's been some. Um, skirmishes and a battle going on since the the maiden revolution in 2014 where you know the the president of the ukraine was overthrown a more you know kind of uh, pro-western anti-putin uh, um, government was installed and there's been skirmishes on the eastern in the eastern regions of the ukraine between the russians and the ukrainians now for eight years and some could even say that there's only this recent conflagration has just been an escalation of a war that was already going on so I imagine that's a, a lot of those factors are driving this as well so if you look at if you look at Russia and you look at the Soviet Union, historically, 
they're very sensitive about their borders, mm-hmm. right? We used to call it a buffer zone. You can call it zone of influence, whatever. The Warsaw Pact countries was a buffer zone for them. Uh, from Russia specifically, Ukraine, Belarus, Baltic states, they're still there. I mean, obviously, they, Russia doesn't own the Baltic states, but they're still in the in the mindset, that's the buffer t- territory. Mm-hmm. Why? Because Russia's been invaded over and over and over. They have They have jokes that reference wars from the 14th century. Wow. Right? Yeah. How do you even, as an American, how do you even start to get your head around that? Yeah. So they say, look, historically... Don't mess with my borders mm-hmm. because y- you come too close. We've suffered a lot yeah. over the centuries. You come too close. We're going to get a little itchy. And so part of what uh, what part of what uh, Putin is saying right now is for the last seven, eight, nine, ten years, you haven't been listening to us. You helped the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the dismantling of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. You helped that happen. Uh, you ran into this space thinking you're going to rip us off and and take all the money and 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 show the poor backward Russians how to do business, which by the way was not successful, mm-hmm. because one of the mentalities of the West was the Russians have never had a capitalist system, therefore they don't know how to do business. So wait a second, they've been merchants for centuries, mm-hmm. and they know a scam, and they know how to run a scam, yeah. and they know corruption and bribery and swindling and all the rest better than you American businesses will ever know. So you try that move, not such a great move. Then uh, Ukraine starts you know, getting getting antsy. Now, this is where it gets a little crazy because you say, okay, Ukraine is antsy because of Russia and Putin's attitude. Putin's getting antsy because Ukraine's getting armed by the West. Mm-hmm. And they said, wait a second, that's my territory. Mm-hmm. Think about the Monroe Doctrine in 1823 or something, right? And the U.S. said, this hands off. Sphere, this is our sphere of influence. Right, hands off South America, hands off, that's us. Mm-hmm. Putin's do, in some ways doing the same thing. He said, look, hands off my neighborhood yeah and i need that neighborhood for all kinds of reasons ukraine's filled with resources ukraine's got oil under crimea Mm -hmm. ukraine's got warm water ports ukraine's got a lot that that i want but here's the thing we lost superpower status you decide there's a new world order and you're the only one in it Mm -hmm. you created this unipolar world you didn't think enough to ask our advice we are a world power. We will always be a world power. We are 11 time zones with nuclear weapons and oil and gas, not to mention all the other resources we have, and you kicked us when we were down. You think we're not going to be pissed off? Mm-hmm. So one of the big feeders for the drivers for Putin now, I believe, one of the biggest ones is respect. He said, you are, you, 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 let's talk about a mafia mentality. Think about scenes in The Godfather. Yeah. You, know, you don't respect me? I told you in Munich in 2007, I told you year after year after year, if you do this, there's going to be something bad coming. Yeah. And if you do this, there's going to be something bad coming. Well, guess what? Something bad is coming. In eastern Ukraine, over the last eight years, there's a separatist movement. That's all this Lugansk, Donetsk conversation about about seceding from Ukraine and Putin uh, recognizing those territories as independent. For the last eight years, there's been that civil war going on mm-hmm. where the Ukrainian army, from a Russian perspective, the Ukrainian army is abusing us, killing us, you know? And so you have all this going on. 
Russian state's not going to stand by the side and watch this happen. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. And one uh, point that, uh, an interesting point that a previous guest of mine, Samuel Boria, had made was that however tough it is for Russia to invade the Ukraine right now, it'll be tougher in five years. So as the West continued to arm the Ukraine, Putin was going to, he was eventually going to take certain, uh, he was going to instigate certain actions. It's better to do it in 2022 than in 2027, perhaps even because of concerns over his own health. Um, in that, that as you mentioned, and, and this can all people keep on trying to pick apart these uh, these these arguments or just a- acknowledging these realities as Putin apologism or or justifying the invasion or blaming the West for the Putin invasion it was like no these are just the realities of geopolitics right that countries are in a power struggle over scarce resources they have separate interests and if you challenge the interests of other countries that sometimes you may be challenged in return the United States might have gotten a little too used to being able to challenge anybody and only think about their own concerns when they were the the sole hegemonic power in the late 90s into the 2000s we're not necessarily in that position any longer and that's why we seem to be i don't know and uh, wondering if you see it this way right now it seems that it's mutually assured destruction almost economically that we're trying to isolate russia socially technologically and economically and they're saying well okay you know in, in response i mean you've got problems you're dependent on us for a lot of natural resources and and we're going to drag if you're trying to take us down we're going to take you down with us russia is so much more integrated into world global economy and combine that with what you were saying earlier one of the big problems that we have as americans is the way we deliver and consume information Mm -hmm. so we've we've gotten to this you know this 140 character world whatever sure we want simplistic narratives especially ones that come out with us as the good guys Mm -hmm. it's the hollywood Rocky story, right? We were Rocky. We we grew up. We became strong. We were biggest in the world and all that. And Russia is the bad guy. We have a default reflex that Russia is wrong, lying, or the bad guy. That's a dangerous way to look at the world. Mm -hmm. This is where those two problems come in, the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. And combine that, I don't want to get off too much on a tangent, but the fact of the matter is we have a problem with the education system. We have a problem with the way we talk to each other. We have a problem with who we see ourselves as Americans. And we don't know how to view the world outside of us. So uh, how are we going to look at all? Right now we're in the honeymoon phase, okay? Mm -hmm. The honeymoon phase of the war. We're in the... Everything's Ukraine. Ukraine is getting butchered. Okay. Yes. Heart is breaking for the Ukrainians. I have friends in Ukraine that the situation is horrific. And we have to say that. Right. We have to acknowledge it. It's the right thing no to doubt. acknowledge. It's a, human, human, a pure human, humanitarian concern. You must say that. However, like you just said, we need to also understand what's the phrase keep your friends close keep your enemies closer sure we have to understand where they're coming from because if we're just a bulldozer saying we're america we're going to do it the way we want well guess what there are a lot of countries that may fall down lie down to that yeah because they're not prepared to stand up or they're not equipped in terms of resources and all of that russia is not that person they grew up in a really tough neighborhood and they're tough people and they're people who have pride and they're people that don't let anyone push them around so how to what extent are we going to hurt ourselves by isolating russia uh 
and and that's the big unknown and and there's something else that has to be said there are so many unknowns i don't think anybody knows where this situation is going i don't think anybody knows how it's going to develop there could be an internal coup on the russian side putin could drop dead of a heart attack and the whole dynamic changes he could take a step beyond ukraine which is going to be bad. It could be an errant missile that flies into Poland, which could be bad. Mm -hmm. There could be a nuclear accident. There could be a nuclear, not such an accident. There could be all kinds of scenarios. The scenarios are endless as to what could happen from here on out. But we have to understand that this isn't we're right, they're wrong. But unfortunately, it fits into the bipolar, the polarization world that we've already created in terms of media, in terms of politics, Democrats against Republicans, Fox News against MSNBC, right? If we just put it in those terms, it's really hard to solve problems in that headspace. Correct. Yep. Not accepting adult realities. And that's when, once again, you're not, you're not at fault. You're not blaming, but you have to accept the realities that you could end up when, when you proceed as if everybody should bend to your righteous and benevolent will, and they don't, that could put yourselves in lose-lose scenarios like we're in right now that might have been avoidable if we had been a little more careful. And that seems to be where we found ourselves now. And so in terms of trying to understand, you know, through the see through the fog of war and understand the realities on the ground or, or perhaps where the situation is going, you have a lot of very informed high-level contacts on the ground right now in Russia. What are you hearing from them? What's the chatter been um, to the extent that you're getting messages from Russia? Um, do you look upon any of them with skepticism for any particular reason? You know, what's your interpretation of what's coming out of from the ground on Russia in Russia? Yeah. So one of the things that uh, contacts of mine in, in Russia have been saying is and reminding me mm. as their little brother. Right. <laughs> these, these people are older than me and I've been with them for a long time. And I said, look, don't forget that this is, number one, more complicated than the West is making it out. Yeah. Number two, don't forget that this isn't just about us that you guys have been doing things all along the way yeah. that impact our perception. Number three, uh, the things that you're showing on television may not be what you, you think, mm -hmm. whether they're right or not, okay? But I'll give you this quick example that just came up the other day, the bombing of the maternity ward. Now, I'm not saying categorically because I don't know what the truth is, but Russians came back to me and said, what if they had gotten they had they had emptied the maternity ward, ward first and put ukrainian snipers and soldiers inside that building mm -hmm. what if that happened yeah you know and it's like oh that changes the picture a little bit doesn't it listen the the soviet hey, both of these nations were part of the soviet union the soviets knew propaganda the russians are using propaganda you couldn't you can't be shocked if the ukrainians are as well Speaking of proper, you know, I'd love to float an, issue, uh, an, an idea out to you um, in terms of hero mythology and the use of propaganda um, to create these hero hero leaders. And, you know, obviously Putin uses that in his own favor and has <clears throat> over the last 20 years. You see it being done with uh, with Zelensky in the Ukraine. Uh, there's another individual I'm sure you kind of, you know, at least indirectly cross paths with named Boris Yeltsin, who initially was presented to the world as a very you know warm, fuzzy and heroic, turned out to be kind of corrupt, a failure. And, and overall a disappointment. Do you see any similarities that, that we might be getting our hopes up about Zelensky, that this might be a little bit of smoke and mirrors and there are going to be some revelations about him that, that may disappoint um, those who have you know quickly become fans of his, um, uh, much as, as 
uh, people were disabused of many, you know, many presumptions about Boris Yeltsin. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts? You know, uh, it's it's we're in the early days. The only thing that we know as a population, generally speaking, is that Zelensky is brave. Mm -hmm. He's charismatic, not a bad looking guy, talented. And we see what's we see his picture on the screen. We see what's happening to his country and we conclude certain things. The fact of the matter is we don't know who he is. Mm -hmm. We don't know who he's connected to. We don't know what the role has been of people inside Ukraine. We don't know what the role has been of people inside Russia. We don't know what the role has been of people inside Washington. Mm -hmm. Russians will, their reaction will be, the U.S. has their guy in, in Ukraine. So if that's their overwhelming belief, and if that's true, that we were the reason that Zelensky is in Ukraine, even more reason for the Russians yeah. to be disturbed. Not only are we talking about weapons and separatist movements, but we're talking about if you want to put it in dramatic language, our number one enemy has their boy on our doorstep. Yeah. A time will tell. I mean, we, you know, in terms of where it goes from here, uh, number one, nobody knows. Number two, what's a little more disturbing is that my Russian contacts have no clue. Mm. Even even the KGB people I talk to, even the the MVD people I talk to. They, they know that there's such a high degree of instability. Mm -hmm. There's such a high degree of ambiguity. And they also know it could go anywhere. Yeah. yeah. And that's this whole thing is really scary. Uh, it's some, some are even saying kind of uh, morbidly, ironically, that it would have been better off if the Russians had achieved a very quick vi uh, victory because then that takes uh, any number of options off the table. Instead, we're sitting here with the possibility of a stray missile. I'm still very skeptical of the idea that uh, Putin's going to voluntarily, deliberately expand the war beyond what he's got. I mean, it seems like he, he's Agreed. already got a little more on his hands that he bargained for. And that seems to be a factor that, yes, um, that uh, on the one hand, clearly the Russian military is underperforming their expectations, but still probably overperforming what the West's uh, the West's interpretation is that simply uh, a victory is inevitable, just going to be at higher cost and, and, uh, and take a longer time. Um, so yeah, we, we've got to kind of be abreast of game plan, all these potential scenarios, um, you know, uh, like you said, in, in real time, which is both dis is disconcerting. Yeah. So let's mention something very quickly about military. We grew up with this mentality of maybe up until the, the, the hockey game in 1980, mm -hmm. right? That the Russians are indestructible, that the Russians are powerhouse and their military they card up that you see them marching and parading the missiles out in Cross square, square. And you're like oh that looks pretty scary right that has me in business right yeah. menace you know mm -hmm. uh, kill a commie for mommy better dead than red all these sure, phrases sure, sure. that some of the older of us grew up with mm -hmm. and what you find out when you start digging in the 70s and 80s and you look at the afghan war in 1979 when the soviets invaded afghanistan mm -hmm. and that now the that that sheen of of perfection and, and monstrous military force yeah. and military might that marches across the land gobbling up territory the russian military and the soviet military were part of the culture mm -hmm. which meant there was corruption scamming lying cheating stealing all that going on inside the military as well couldn't be uh, couldn't be otherwise so they had some elite divisions but they also had equipment that was collapsing they had horrible leadership the word that i hear is that the leadership these days is still 
not up to snuff that you know the mentality of the russian military some people are speculating we're going to see a lot of desertions coming mm -hmm. up we'll see but you have a history of world war ii how how did the military be, you know be so brave during world war ii and accomplish incredible things to to help to help almost single-handedly beat the nazis mm -hmm. is because the nkvd the security services were on the back lines shooting anybody who was deserting yeah yeah, yeah. it was not a good idea to desert you know yeah one way or another do not retreat take their bullets take our bullets exactly you know you put on top of that the overlay mentality of gulag of kgb of an uh, informants everywhere I met so many informants that in the wow. 1990s, they would they didn't mind telling me. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, I informed for the KGB. Oh, I informed for the KGB. They're otherwise normal, nice people. What would you do if you lived in the Soviet Union and the KGB came to you and said, tell me about your neighbor? And you say, no, you're not going to say no. You're going to the gulag. You're going to the gulag. Yeah. And, and every family had somebody who disappeared. Wow. Cousin, uncle, whatever, who was arrested who disappeared never to be heard from again you know and i had a friend also in this mentality world uh who was a flight attendant on aeroflot mm -hmm. and she said yeah when we finished a flight we would report to a specific room and we would have to talk about who were the foreign businessmen on that plane uh -huh. and they would report all this stuff and, and the kgb would decide is that somebody that we need to track is that somebody whose room we need to tap is that somebody that we need to send hookers to is that somebody we need to compromise mm -hmm. compromat compromat in russian compromising material right is the hook that we get i mean it's not just a russian thing but it's they had a whole system of getting compromat where we everyone has a hook you know, you hang up your coat, you have this little hook on the back. Yeah. Everyone's got this invisible hook. And attached to that invisible hook is a fishing line. And I can reel you in at any time I want. Mm -hmm. and, and and that's the mentality of this place. So you think about that in terms of military, in terms of the downside of the military, the poor performance, the poor preparation. Um, you think about it in terms of how the Russians are going to survive from here on out. You think about mentality, survival mentality. You think about a thousand years of surviving to become this global power on 11 time zones. Yeah, I'm pretty proud of that. Yeah, uh, we are going to be powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we understand force and power in ways that you don't. And guess what? I decided to use it against Ukraine. Yeah. And hey, when we spend, you know, a couple decades... Uh, getting the entire Western world addicted to our cheap oil and gas and natural resources. And we tell you, hey, um, you know, the whole this whole, well, the Ukraine gets to choose, uh, it voluntarily choose its alliances. Well, no, they don't. Um, we need a an affirmative uh, stance, to, uh, an affirmative guarantee from you that the your, NATO is not going to absorb the Ukraine. Okay, we're not getting that. Well, okay, now we're going to take, you took strategic, act. you threatened strategic action against us. We are taking strategic action against you. Once again, not justifying it, but simply realities. Yes. This is reality. How many people know or understand that a lot of metal that's used by Airbus and Boeing to construct the aircraft comes out of Russia? What is going to be the long-term effect on the price of Fill in the blank. Yeah. Gas, air, air travel, resources. Wheat fertilizer. Apparently, they supply 20% 20 20 of the world's fertilizer. They have an enormous mineral fertilizer industry. Yeah. Enormous. You know, you can't ignore Russia. And that's one of the primary drivers of Vladimir Putin's 
mentality mm -hmm. so you've ignored us you disrespected us you kicked us to the side you treated us like we don't matter and now you talk about nuclear weapons on our border and you're arming our look there's an argument on both sides mm -hmm. you can argue that russia has always been hegemonic russia's always been aggressive russia started it how do you even pull this gordian knot apart yeah how do you get to the beginning of well who's to blame it Come on. Yeah, it's, uh, it is. Uh, as you said, and, and that going back to the kaleidoscope, I mean, you also mentioned that in Russia, up is down, black is white, and nothing is what it seems. Accidents look like coincidences. Coincidences look like patterns, and patterns feel like plots. A tough one to unwind, and I think a lot of people are looking at this way too simplistically in terms of both good and evil and our ability to isolate Russia, and they're going to say, great, we don't get to use Visa and Facebook. We don't really care. You don't get to use our fertilizer, our minerals, um, and our gas, and that's going to have an impact. The idea that we can just economically isolate Russia without a significant burden and, and cost on our side, it's a bit of a fantasy. Um, speaking of fantasies, uh, and some, well, not fantasies, realities of your book, um, Vodka, uh, Hookers, and the Russian Mafia. Um, let's get to the vodka part real quick, because this is something <laughs> else that people seem to underestimate in Russia, is the true extent of how much people fucking drink there. Yeah. People drink a lot. The prevalence, and this is to a certain extent, um, even considered one of the one of the issues that, you know, um, at the beginning of World War II is that there were too many, uh, too many of the, Hitler thought Russia was going to be easy to invade. He says, oh, these soldiers are all drunk all day. And you want to know something? He wasn't necessarily that wrong. And people have been trying to trace the, per the unique love of uh, uh, the Russians have for drink, even back to Prince Vladimir and uh, supposedly in the 10th century adopting uh, Orthodox Christianity because it didn't prohibit drinking alcohol. Um, Russian historian Boris Medvedev argued that the chaos in the, the 90s was actually that vodka was an opiate of the masses explaining how Russian state property was transferred into private hands so rapidly without any social unrest because everyone was drunk all the time. Do Russians truly drink that much? Do you know what one of the big rises of the Russian mafia was? The traditional organized crime gangs? Was it selling alcohol? It was, what, it was when Gorbachev said, oh yeah, prohibition. Mm. And, and billions of rubles did not find their way into the state coffers. Uh -huh. and, and they provided, the gangsters provided, you know, possibility. Mm -hmm. um, it, so over the last 20 years, there's been a shift in how people think about uh, vodka and drinking and the public ca campaigns against drinking excessively and all that. That almost doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. What do you think is going to happen now? There are some things in the book, uh, thing documents I came across in the past talking about how we drink and when we drink. We drink when there's a newborn baby. We drink when the sun is out. Mm -hmm. We drink to celebrate. We drink when we're mourning. We drink when we're sad. We drink when we're happy. We drink just because it's Tuesday. Mm -hmm. When I was living over there, I'm not a big guy. I didn't come from a, big, a drinking family. Mm -hmm. When I came back after a year, year of working with the cops, I could sit at a table and do 15 shots of vodka <laughs> without a problem. Yeah, and yeah. I'd get up and walk home. Yeah. It wouldn't be a big deal. And that's scary. That's mm -hmm. a sickness. Uh, so they drank a lot. You know, we drank to toast all kinds of things. Uh, and what's going to happen is I'm betting that if this continues and Russia's sealed off the way it looks like it's being sealed off and and unemployment skyrockets and inflation skyrockets and all the rest of it, what do you think people are going to resort to? Yeah. They have world champion <laughs> drinking genes <laughs> and they're going to make the vodka cheap. Why? Because that's a great way. That's a great way to keep the people 
down on the farm, mm -hmm. right? To yeah. keep the population under control. Yeah. And and the opiate of the masses, as they say. You know. So, so let's get to the hookers part. Okay. So part. you know we didn't uh, talk about the, the the lifestyles of the the oligarchs, but clearly, um, much like there's a culture of drinking, there's a culture of unapologetic opulence, and that those a lot of those who prospered in the 90s were these pleasure seekers who came you know who knew that there were spoils that knew that there were fortunes to be found and that would lead to big big yachts docked off the coast of uh, uh the, the you know big Walmart. yachts and god knows yeah. what and and hookers and everything all trappings of that lifestyle and obviously you experienced that as well uh, among some of your you know the people you came across in russia yeah so when when your society collapses what do you do if you're not connected or you don't have a job that has, uh, you know, big income, mm -hmm. you have to use whatever you have access to. And what people have access to most readily it's are their the bodies. Body. Yeah. So uh, like any other country, there are levels, right? You have your $5,000 a night hooker. Mm -hmm. You have your girl on the street. The, the oligarchs were also involved in human trafficking and uh underage girls so they have these big parties on their boats and they, they organize all this very structured kind of business around uh females uh there was a place that i would go to with people from out of town mm -hmm. a restaurant a restaurant had great steaks but it also happened to be a brothel basically essentially a meat market yeah right not just the steak meat market right so it at 10 o'clock at night the ownership would open the front door. There'd be all these women standing out on the street. They would file in. They'd be dressed to the nines, all made up. And they would stand in two lines. And men would walk through the middle. And they'd size them up, check them out. This is a half mile from the Kremlin, mm -hmm. right up the street from Red Square. And they would check them out and pick. They'd pick one or two, whatever, however many you want. Go to the corner of the lounge drink, hang out, go home, dance, do whatever you, you need to do, negotiate the prices and all that. And these women were hookers, but they were teachers and secretaries yeah. and engineers, you know, because if, if you just have a thousand, 2000% inflation and you're making 400, 500 rubles a month, and that hasn't changed that much in the past year or two, how are you going to buy a new pair of shoes? Yeah. So the hooker thing that that was most intriguing to me and, and I got most protective about, it, as it turned out, was when foreigners come in and abused that mm -hmm. process. Like I've seen people negotiate and then say, oh, never mind. It's like, what do you mean, never mind? <laughs> yeah. You, they could have been making money with somebody else. Yeah. You have no idea. This is not that feeling. Yeah, this is this is this is survival. Could they literally could have been a nurse, and then the nurse salary all of a sudden became not enough to buy a loaf of bread, and they had to go sell their body. And this is once again the very the things that we cannot contemplate. The realities that the 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 Russian people experience that are pretty commonplace that are just so completely illusory and phantasmal to us. And not that any of this doesn't exist anywhere else. And yeah. by the way. Let me just say this. When it comes to organized crime, prostitution, drinking, all of it exists, mm -hmm. obviously. And we have problems with any number of things in our country. One of the big things about Russia, besides obviously the different culture, is it's so much more intense. Yeah. The scope of what they do, 
Like everything is an extreme that comes out of the psychology and the culture and the history. What they do is an extreme. They build bigger rockets, they build bigger buildings, they have a bigger country. They do things in a big way and they do their problems in a big way too. Mm -hmm. And, and how do you avoid it? It's 11 time zones of collapse. Yeah. Based or built upon a foundation that's, that by necessity has taught you how to scam. Mm -hmm. When one of the couple of things I was talking about in the book was in 1990s when I was living there, if it started to rain, you would just see all these cars pull off to the side. And what were they doing? They would then open their front door, get their windshield wipers out of the pouch in their door uh -huh. and clip them on. Uh, uh, Why? Because on a sunny day, those things are going to get stolen uh -huh. because supply and demand didn't work the way it works here mm -hmm. because the government didn't really care about keeping the population happy or, or filled with consumer goods. You had to learn how to maneuver and navigate and manipulate everything. So they did. Yeah. And by the way, these are normal people. Normal people meaning like like you and me trying to figure out how to put food on the table, trying to figure out how to get their kid dressed to go to school, trying to figure out how they're going to work their way through the high school and university system where they're going to have to pay bribes to get accepted into the best schools, where professors will write your dissertation for you for 5000 bucks or 10000 bucks. That's the reality. The entire system was like that. It was a system. Yeah. Right? We don't have to do that yet. If we mess with our country the way we're messing with our country, if the middle class disappears in the United States, what do you think we're going to do? Going to see people pulling out all the stops, resorting to more, let's call it engineered solutions, than you know, operating within uh, a traditional market forces. And uh, uh, as I think people here with the experiences of a more traditionally autocratic country, the principles that have really uh, that people have been dismissing recently, like free speech and freedom and due process and all these you know pillars and, and, and these pillars of American democracy that, yes, yeah, sometimes leave things a little a little messy, but are probably the best option we got. Uh, you know, maybe people need to go rediscover a value and an appreciation for them. One of the things that happened in 1990, 91, 92 in the Soviet Union is that when the Soviet Union was dismantled and there was the free for all for resources and all the rest is that the institutions collapsed. You look at the institutions in our country and just examine them and see what kind of shape they're in. The institutions collapsed. Who fills a vacuum? That's where the gangs came from. Yeah. That's where they grew up. They existed for 20, 30 years before that, but they got their big power boost when the institutions collapsed, when everything was up for grabs, when KGB and MVD and gangs and, every, and politicians and bureaucrats could all team up together to make things happen. Mm -hmm. And what happens to the average person? You don't matter anymore. They get squeezed. To the extent you ever did, but you don't matter anymore. I'm a cop. I don't need to help you. Mm -hmm. The officer-friendly idea that I grew up with in the 60s and 70s was not quite the same thing in the Soviet Union. And after the Soviet Union collapsed, you better have cop friends. Yeah. You know, you... justice came through network of influence and friends and, you know, relationships. Yeah. You, you can't wait. You can't rely on that backstop of principle. Yeah. The value system was different. And the way we thought about each other was different. And if you die, then you die. And that's what happens. And I'm going to try to not die. Right. <laughs> but what the gangsters did was said, look, all this stuff is up for grabs. 
it's worth dying over. Yeah. It's worth dying trying to do well, this. Well, hey, hey, we're, we're rolling get rich or die trying because they rolled the dice and you roll the dice and it comes up nicely. You end up Roman Abramovich with $15 billion owning the Chelsea soccer teams and with those yachts we talked about. And it, it, things came up nicely for a couple of them. And that's then, you know, their relationship to Putin, which we would probably do another hour on and uh, his, uh, his tr- attempt to corral and enforce, um, you know, kind of... Uh, push the, the oligarchs into a subservient role when he came into power and absorb some of them into his sphere over the last 10, 15 years, I imagine. We'll probably have an entire other conversation about. But we will save that one for another time. Um, the type of background and, and kind of fundamental understanding of the situation that we need to help everyone see see what's going on in that region, which is becoming you know more important to world affairs every day through a more clear lens. Um, Dr. Joe Serio, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. I am Matt Belinsky. Once again, you can listen and subscribe to The Prevailing Narrative on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Make sure to follow me on my socials at Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. The Prevailing Narrative is a Cavalry Audio production in association with iHeartRadio. Produced by Brandon Morgan, executive produced by Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Matt Belinsky. Traffic jams tailgating pileups oh the joys of driving how could it get worse the federal government wants to have a say in what you drive that's right the biden administration's epa is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today don't let washington become your backseat driver protect the freedom of driving your way visit energycitizens.org paid for by the american petroleum institute